0: So the informal chat is normally we ask you where you are. Alexandra's answer last time was exemplary uh, and will be the same. So that, so that's Maybe we can
1: move on to something else instead. We need to come up with some new
0: material. You need new material. Yeah, you're right. Where aren't you calling from, Alexandra? You're not in you're France. You're not in, so I'm in
1: Polignano. I'm in France and I'm not in Polignano. I'm in Chelsea on the River Thames on my houseboat called Veronica and people often think that veronica is alexandra and alexandra is veronica it's quite confusing
0: <laughs> veronica yeah w- what is the source of the name
1: i don't know you know boats you don't change their names it's very unlucky Yeah. it was just called veronica so I like we call it. it veronica
0: i like it i like, think it's I like names
1: veronica dna yes yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, that, thank you. Is very generous of you, Alexandra. I think this is going to be a good episode. Thank you, Simon.
2: Where are you? I am in a little flat in a little village in West Oxfordshire. Are you getting out and about now, Simon? Well, I never really got out and about in the before the pandemic, but, um, <laughs> but I am <laughs> doing a little bit of it now. I did go to the Cheltenham Literary Festival yesterday. That was rather. Rather lovely. Oh, that was exciting. To see, yes. uh, who did you see? I went I went to, because my friend Karina Licorice Quinn was speaking about her new book, uh, The Dust Never Settles, which she, she was on a panel of people talking about magical realism, a genre about which I know almost nothing, mm. but now know a little bit more.
0: I, I would, I'm not even going to say anything about magical realism, such as my... <laughs> Uh, Aversion, hatred, of it, <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's bad, isn't it? That's yeah. bad. I went to a literary festival last week and I had an absolute <laughs> whale of a time. As anyone who follows me on Twitter will know, God, I had fun! It was br- it was great. I interviewed Hayley Mills and oh, Steve Van Zandt from the East. I know, band. just
1: the best. I, me- I met Haley Mills two years ago at Gifford Circus and I was nearly fainted with excitement, yeah because obviously she was my heroine when I was a young woman. It was amazing to meet her. How exciting.
0: I have very similar feelings, Alexander.
3: Me too. (laughs) In fact, I think my feelings are somewhat more suspect. Yes, I
0: think yours are.
1: (laughs) Yours? I don't want to know yours, John. But, of course, the parent trap leads into the book that we're talking about because, you know, Identical twins. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Indeed, yes. it does.
1: But I had the most exciting week last week because an author of mine won the Nobel Prize. <laughs> don't know. So, hang no. on.
0: No, that's that's coming up in the intro. <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't, you're we not can't getting cut away cut that, that easy. We're not wasting. Yeah, you're not. You tried to just, as though that were the lightest thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
3: there is nothing. There is there is no trophy, not now, that you don't have on your shelf. It's un, unbelievable. What, amazing. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it later right let's, let's crack go. on shall we um oh okay it's me hello and welcome to backlisted <laughs> the podcast that gives new life to old books today you find us driving across the sun-baked plains of southern california heading towards the sierra it's late june in the early 60s and we're on our way to a wedding the top is down on the riley as we speed through the dark green fields of alfalfa our sense oh. of foreboding grows I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of
0: Unbound, oh. the platform where readers crowdfund books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of the Year of Reading Dangerously. And we're joined today by two guests, one new Simon Thomas and one returning Alexandra Pringle. Yay. Yay. Welcome, welcome, welcome to both folks. of you. Uh, Simon Thomas co-hosts the Tea or Books <laughs> podcast. Tea? or Books, where he and Rachel debate the difficult decisions of reading and books, from whether to read one book at a time or many, to whether they'd keep Austen or Wolf if they could only have one. Did you? What did you decide when you had that debate?
2: Well, that was maybe the hardest decision we've done, and I did keep Austen in the end, with the belief that you can read Austen in any mood, whereas Wolf, <laughs> if you're looking for something light just before bed, probably not.
0: Let me turn to you, Alexandra Pringle, Austen or Wolf?
1: Austin, (laughs) yeah. For the laughs, you know, you've got to have laughs. Yeah,
0: you have to have the laughs. Well, we've managed to get at least 30 seconds out of that debate. the <laughs> teal books do this much better than we do. Uh, he is series consultant. Simon's I'm a series consultant for the British Library Women Writers Series, which, brilliant yes. series, which reprints neglected books by and about women from the early to mid-20th century, including lesser-known titles by E.M. Delafield, Rose McCauley, and Elizabeth von Arnim, as well as almost totally forgotten authors like Winifred Boggs <laughs> and Dorothy Evelyn Smith. I've read two of your books, Simon, and they are My Husband Simon by Molly Panterdowns, yeah. which I absolutely loved. Brilliant. And "Tea is so intoxicating. And who was that? Mary Essex. Yes, that's right. And she wrote about 200 books, didn't she? 500, I think. <laughs> oh, forgive yes. me. <laughs> yes, you've,
2: you're shortchanging her. I really am. <laughs> Uh, yes, Ursula Bloom was her real name And Mary Essex, one of her many pseudonyms
0: That book was not t- at all what I expected it to be I thought it was going to be ever so nice And it wasn't It was really nasty in an enjoyable way Village life, in fact, Simon and John It's sort of about the, you the backstabbing ways of village life, isn't
2: it? And very yeah. little has changed, absolutely <laughs> yes. It's frothy and lovely at the same time Frecious. as being yeah. venomous Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, so, and, and grudges held for years
0: so I recommend that. And also, very excitingly, next month, you are republishing a great favourite of many people who listen to this podcast, and I reckon Alexandra's as well, which is... A pen to See the yeah, picture yeah, yeah, by F. Tennyson
2: Jesse.
1: Yes, one of the Viragos from the old days.
2: Exactly, yes, about the Thompson Bywaters murder case. Made into a very, very good
3: uh, TV mm. drama, I think, with Francesca Annis playing... Uh, the young Francesca Annis playing
0: um, Edith Thompson. Simon, has that? Do we know why that hasn't been available for a while? Was it just lying fallow until you um, made inquiries?
2: Well, as far as I know, it was a very complicated rights issue that luckily I don't have to deal with at all. I can just say, this is a wonderful book. Wouldn't it be lovely if we reprinted it? And, they, and some, someone very clever went and sorted it out.
0: Is this
3: person
2: available for <laughs> uh, for hire?
0: <laughs> uh, well, anyway, that series is lovely. And if people who listen to this podcast aren't aware of it, they, they should definitely go and explore the, the... You're up to about 13 or 14 titles now, aren't you, I think?
2: Yes, I think that's about Brilliant. right. And one, one that's... Just, I want to mention the Winifred Boggs, if I may, just because I think it's seldom has an author had such an unprepossessing name for <laughs> such, a, such a wonderful book, <laughs> Sally on the Rocks, from the 1910s. And it's this wonderfully proto-feminist book about a love triangle that doesn't go at all how you'd expect. So <laughs> heartily didn't recommend that one. And she completely disappeared.
1: I must definitely <laughs> read that one. But what is your favourite <laughs> of all the ones you've done?
2: Ooh, I think it probably is Oh the Brave Music by Dorothy Evelyn Smith, which um, is written in the 40s and set before the First World War and after 1900, never exactly clear when. Uh, and it's sort of, I would describe as a meeting point of I Capture the Castle and Jane Eyre. It's um, one of those books that fully Brilliant. takes you into that, <laughs> envelops you in that world. It's largely set on the Yorkshire Moors, this young girl growing from, I think it's seven to 18. And just wonderful, wonderful
0: book. Listeners will be, oh, will be wondering brilliant. why it's taken us 150 episodes to get Simon on here. <laughs> he does, <laughs> I'm actually resigning and he's taking over. Brilliant. <laughs> Absolutely. Brilliant. I was just wondering, would it, would it have been helpful,
3: Alexandra, back in the day to have had yes. Simon uh, kind of as, as a resource? It would have been definitely, amazing, wouldn't it?
1: Definitely. I don't know how we live without him.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, fortunately, to follow that... Alexandra Pringle joined us on Backlisted last year for episode 113, 112A, to discuss The Constant Nymph (laughs) by Margaret Kennedy. The controversial Constant Nymph by Margaret Kennedy. But we picked our way through it, didn't we? It was one of our favourite episodes last year. It was great fun. amazing. She is Bloomsbury's executive publisher, having been editor-in-chief there for more than 20 years. She joined Virago Press in 1978, where she edited the Virago Modern Classics series, becoming editorial director in 1984. In 1990, she moved to Hamish Hamilton as editorial director and four years later left publishing to become a literary agent, joining Bloomsbury again in 1999. Her list of authors includes, good heavens, Margaret Atwood, Richard Ford, Esther Freud, Elizabeth Gilbert, Sheila Hancock, Khaled Hosseini, Celia Imri, George Saunders, Camilla Shamsi, Patti Smith, Kate Summerscale and just last week... Alexandra won the Nobel Prize for Literature <laughs> via her proxy, Abdul Razak <laughs> Just the most incredible. Where were you when you found out he had won?
1: I was on the boat, I was in a meeting and uh, my (laughs) phone was going crazy and then these emails popped up and I can't remember which email I read and then I just literally nearly fainted. It was the greatest shock of my entire professional life. It was the most unexpected thing that has ever happened to me. And particularly, I have to say, because I was getting to the point after publishing Abdul Razak Ghana for 20 years and loving his work and feeling that he was one of the most important living writers, certainly the most important living African writer, that um, although he's always got wonderful reviews and, you know, people do know about him, but in the larger world, he was completely ignored. And last year, I was absolutely sure that he would get on the book a long list, at the very, very least, because what he writes about, what he's always written about, which is the displacement of people through politics and and world events and so forth, and, um, and how he writes about it, um, and the fact that he's such a beautiful writer. Last year, with the ever-growing refugee crisis, and then with Black Lives Matter, I thought, at last, this is going to be this is going to be his year. It's going to happen. And guess what? He didn't make the long list, and he didn't make the Costa list either. And he made the long list of the Walter Scott Prize, nice, and uh, the short list of the Orwell Prize. And and that was that. And then, literally the week before, I mean, the ten days ago or something, um, there was a piece in the Guardian about reinventing the canon of black writing and people like Bernardine Evaristo and Ben Cree yeah. chose, you know, who they thought were important black writers. And guess what? No one mentioned Abdul Razak. And it was a very, very low moment for me. And I did feel the nearest I've ever felt to despair. And I'm not much given to despair. I'm insanely optimistic <laughs> as a human being. You have to be if you're a publisher. Um, And I tweeted about that. And then literally like four days later, (laughs) won the biggest bloody prize there is.
0: Could you, could you, this will, this seems obvious to us, but could you just say, tell listeners, pretend that, you know, they don't, they probably don't know because they won't, they won't necessarily know what it means in terms of um, publishing his work into the UK market?
1: I think it's much more important in terms of the international market than the UK market. Although in the case of Abdul Razak, it's incredibly important for the UK, but not necessarily for other Nobel winners. Because as we know, we are a pretty insular nation here and we don't, on the whole, read much in the way of translated work. We don't, we're not very outward looking Um, and so the Nobel Prize will increase sales in America and every country in the world, and it doesn't necessarily touch that much in the UK. But Mm. in the case of Abdul Razak, not only, of course, is he here um, and has been here since the 1960s, but um, he writes these beautiful stories and they're books that anyone
3: mm, can read amazing.
1: And, uh, and they are about things that we need to think about at the moment. So I absolutely know that nothing will ever be the same for him again in Britain mm-hmm. as well as around the
0: fantastic. world. Fantastic, fantastic. Anyway, let me finish this introduction and then because we've we got we to crack on. Yeah. Alexandra is a patron of Index on Censorship, a trustee of Gifford Circus and the charity Reprieve, and an Honorary Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. The book
3: that Alexandra and Simon have chosen to discuss with us today is Cassandra at the Wedding by Dorothy Baker, first published in 1962 by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt in the US and Victor Gollancz in the UK, reissued in the US in 2004 by the New York Review of Books Classics List and in 2018 by Daunt's Books. Those two lists, obviously pillars of contemporary backlist taste and discernment. So, Cassandra and the Wedding was Dorothy Baker's fourth and final novel. She's best known for a 1938 jazz tale, Young Man with a Horn, which was made into a movie, more of that later, and her lesbian-tinged romance trio... But Cassandra at the Wedding is Dorothy Baker's masterpiece. It's a dark family comedy based around the imminent marriage of Judith Edwards, a 24-year-old Californian musician, to John Thomas Finch, a recently qualified doctor from Connecticut. They plan to marry at Judith's family Californian ranch, but her troubled and troublesome twin sister, Cassandra, hurtling home from the flat they once shared together in Berkeley, has other ideas. Baker's careful uncovering of the layers of family life, we find that both sisters are still in the throes of grief for their mother Jane, a mercurial writer who died of cancer three years earlier. Despite the valiant attempts of their brandy-soaked father, a philosopher who has exiled himself from academic life, and their waspish but devoted grandmother, the family tensions come to a head. As an early fan of the book, Carson McCullers observes, it is the exquisite pyrotechnics of Baker's prose that lift a domestic drama to the status of a literary classic. But before we plunge into the shark infested pool of family politics, let me pose the old question. Andy, what have you been reading this week?
0: Well, I've been reading a book by Michael Bracewell called Souvenir, London, 1979 to 1986. Um, And it's an account of London in the period after punk, but before the rise of digital technology. It's non-fiction. It's quite hard to categorise. And um, so I would say there's elements of geography, uh, style writing, music writing, um, but fiction as well. Bracewell is a novelist, though he hasn't published a novel for 20 years. The last novel he wrote is a fantastic little book called Perfect Tents about an office worker in the city of London, which I think was published by Cape, which I strongly recommend if people don't know that book. He also wrote a nonfiction book called England is Mine, which is a terrific book about Roxy music called Remake Remodel. And he he mostly works now as a as a an art critic. I really love his writing. He hasn't published a new book for quite a long time. So I was really excited when Souvenir came out. And what I like about it is. I'm going to read you from the beginning of the book. It starts off as one kind of book. And then as it goes on, it becomes like I want, to, it's very hard to describe, but it's almost like it dissolves into something more impressionistic or something more abstract. So it starts with specifics, pop culture specifics, as you'll hear. But then it becomes like a. It's almost like an early 80s video. It's like a John Fox video, or it's like a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy, that things you think you remember begin to blur a bit and fade. And it moves from being descriptive to impressionistic. And I, when I was reading it, I was thinking in the words of Eric Morgan, well, this is fine, but it won't... Sell many ice creams going at that speed, and um <laughs> I genuinely thought who is going to buy this this is I mean this is wonderful, but who's going to buy it i 'm really pleased I heard yesterday that they 've reprinted that Uh, It looks like they're going into another printing after this one, that it seems to have caught something, and it's caught people's imaginations because, guess what? The thing that sells books is selling this, which is word of mouth. So this came out, uh, by the time you hear this, a couple of months ago, but people are talking about it and reading it and being intrigued by it and maybe a bit perplexed, but in a good way. So I'm just going to read you the beginning, and I can't help thinking that many of us gathered here today will will prickle with recognition of some of this. So anyway, souvenir. Michael Bracewell, Chapter One, Movement. After the freezing winter of 1981, with its hard frosts and clear icy twilights of intense stillness, and quiet skinny boys hunched in old raincoats always having to walk, listening to New Order, reading John Wyndham and J.G. Ballard, and pale art school girls in the thrall of Sheila Erte and David Sylvian, there occurred in the pop-style zeitgeist a role-playing fantasy. This took the following form and proved a sharp contrast. A received idea of London's West End during the mid-20th century, mixing a concentrate of bebop to beat-boom modes from the late 40s to the early 1960s. This reminds me of your friend Christian from Blue Rondo à la Turk. And making a dressing up box of their glamour, zoot suits, pinstripes, and keychains. Alma Cogan, Spivs, Julie London, Old Compton Street, Espresso Bongo, and the talk of the town. A streetwise, fast-talking, cool proletarian notion of Jewish tailors, Bakerlite, Beat Girl, Permades, strippers, D Mob, and D Mop. Coffee bars, beehives, impresarios, modern jazz, Taffeta, nightclub, Stephen Ward, Rockabilly, Stout, Diamante, and upright bass. This fantasy building in exuberance over two or three years to embrace samba, salsa, disco, tinsel, cocktail bar, palm trees, tans, and tennis shorts, good times, party, carnival, showbiz—the sound of a bright New Britain—occurring alongside this period costume drama of pre-Swinging London, pre-Beatle Pop. Meanwhile, to pursue an independent but occasionally overlapping course was a cult of the abject, industrial, a cult transgressive, clever, days in a tower block east of Old Street, nights in heaven or the Final Academy counter-fantasy, which seemed the shadow side, confrontational, smug, oppressive, highly wrought of all that jazz, samba, good times, showbiz shit. The shadow side knelt at the altar of Burroughs, Boer, Pasolini and Bataille, the samba side rather to bernard delfont <laughs> <laughs> that sounds brilliant if you like that it's a kind of high wire act for the whole book it's it, i thought it was wonderful so um that's souvenir by michael bracewell and that's published by white rabbit john what have you been reading
3: um i've been reading uh, pure indulgence uh, this week but I, I picked it up. It's sent to me by uh, Nat Jantz of Sort of Books, who has done an amazing job bringing all of Tove Janssen's work into uh, into print. And this is um, Notes from an Island uh, by Tove and Tuliki Pietila, uh, known as Tuti. Uh, they live together uh, as partners. And this is the account of their life. On the, each summer they would go, 26 summers, they spent on this tiny little rocky island called Klovharun in the Gulf of Finland, and they built a house there. And in the end, they became too old. In 1991, they were too old to, to stay there, and they left in their, in their late 70s. But it's, a, it's um, as well as Tove Janssen's uh, wonderful prose, there's also these there are beautiful copperplate and wash um, paintings of the island by, by Tutti, who was a painter and a sculptor. And there's also wonderful uh, kind of uh, logbook from a man called Brunström, a man so laconic that he uses no adjectives in everyday <laughs> speech. He's the guy who plays Ericsson <laughs> in Tove Janssen's famous – he's Ericsson in the summer book. So this is not the island that the, that the summer book is, is based on, but it's it was their kind of home and their refuge. It's it's a beautiful book. It's a beautifully made yes, it book. it looks They've, amazing. Sort of have done it wonderfully. And I, it's just that thing, you know, one evening I picked it up and I was transported to the Gulf of Finland, to the, the the rocks and the sea and the sound of the sea. And she writes with such elegance. I'm just going to read a tiny little bit to give you the flavour. Also, I thought this would amuse you about the, uh, it starts with about them, on, not on their waiting to see if they can get planning permission to build. Mm-hmm. So this is back in the 60s. While we waited, we lived on Haru in a tent. It rained the whole time. Tuti read The Vicomte de Bragelonne, Volume 6. There's nothing like the classics, she said. Read Les Miserables, unabridged, and then you'll understand. <laughs> you have to be loyal. <laughs> yeah, <like> that
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> we know, I know that Tutti is loyal to what she believes, even afterwards. We'd pitched our tent right next to the big boulder, which is so massive that it had become a landmark, at least for people who navigate by hearsay. The boulder is estimated to weigh about 50 tons. It lies in a huge frog pond at the only spot suitable for building a cabin that's out of the ocean's reach. It rained all week. The pond overflowed and trickled down the rock face right past our tent, and it smelled awful. We dreamed about what our new cabin would look like. The room would have four windows, one in each wall. Towards the southeast, we'd need to see the big storms that rage right across the island. On the east, we'd see the moon's reflection in the lagoon, and on the west side, a rock face with moss and polypody ferns. To the north, we'll keep watch for the approaching boats, so we'll have time to get ready. We figured that if we were going to build a cabin, it ought to be fairly high up on the slope, but not at the top, because that's only for the navigation marker, maybe just a little way down, so that from the gulf and from the boats that rush past for no good reason, only the chimney is visible in silhouette against the light. Late one evening, we heard a motor shut down at our beach, and someone with a flashlight came slowly up the slope. He introduced himself, Brunström from Krakow. Brunström was out salmon fishing and was going to spend the night on his boat. Then he saw a light on the island. We made tea on our primer stove. Brunström is rather small. He has an austere, weather-beaten face and blue eyes. His gestures are quick but measured, and he uses no adjectives in everyday speech. His boat has no name. We trusted him immediately. Brunström told us we wouldn't need much time although you never knew with the autumn weather he'd bring Sjöblom and maybe Charlie and Helmer. and for starters they'd have to blow up the big boulder Brunström said that dynamiting and excavating for a cellar doesn't count as construction construction means framing and framing won't last the winter without a roof so we'd have to hurry before it snows he said and so it goes on. It's just, it's, it's that simple, that I'm lovely. I'm always happy to
0: read more to the, the
3: And it, it's, yeah. I mean, if you, if you, if you love the, that the, the pitch of her, there is a melancholy always that runs through her work, which is there through this and the, the, the actually the, it, it's very moving. The the that their fight their farewell to the island and leaving it is, is beautifully done. But, uh, it, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a small, but. I think really beautiful addition to the Tove Janssen canon and hats off to sort of for, for, for
0: producing it so beautifully. When you said you were reading this, I, uh, I had it rang a bell with me and I, I thought I could remember that Simon was a huge fan of Tove Janssen. Am I
2: right? you remember correctly, yeah. I think she's so wonderful, as you say. She, there's that melancholy, but there's always it's always a complete lack of sentimentality to everything Absolute. she writes. Whether it, you and know. humor,
3: you know, she's funny. I mean, like like the like the like the Moomin trolls themselves, yeah. and her, her relationship with Tuti. Which, I mean, I don't know. if, if you have seen the film, is a, is an amazing mm. film as well. The Tovo
2: film and the Fair World, Play World, is World. the novel that's sort of based yeah. on them, isn't it? Which is another. Well, they're all wonderful. <laughs> Uh, and she's been so lucky as well, posthumously, that Thomas Teal, I don't know if he's translated this one, but he's translated all the others, I think, and he's... Yes, th-
3: I should absolutely should say that, to- tam- translated by Thomas Teal. So I was looking
0: think. to see if her American novel, Sun City, was coming back, because I think I read somewhere that it is, though it might not be sort of that are doing it. I typed in Tuve Janssen's Sun City Twitter, and the first
2: result that came up was Simon Thomas.
0: Well, there you go. <laughs> well, that's uh, you. Yes. That's <laughs> you. He's one-
2: <laughs> it's, it is me it's, it's one of those times when you think gosh there might be a ne- neglected gem and perhaps this is the best of her work and it absolutely is the worst of her work but unfortunately think... <laughs> it is yes yeah. the, the, I the worst agree her work, still very good but
0: fascinating yeah, though yeah. fascinating well we've done that now <laughs> the main event <laughs> the book chat will continue on the other side of this message right John where are we we're in Bur- um, we're in Bakersfield, are we? <laughs> I think we're in Bakersfield, no. In California. I think we're in a
3: ranch. We're a ranch somewhere between Putnam and uh, Bakersfield, okay. aren't we?
0: <laughs> so, Cassandra at the Wedding by Dorothy Baker. This was published in 1962, as John was saying earlier. Uh, this is the main book we're talking about today. Alexandra, you chose the book for us. Do you want to say where you first read it? Was it a virago? It was a virago. It was,
1: but I read it way before that. Um, mm. In the literally, when I was a teenager in the '60s, must have been the late '60s. I, I try to think. I must have been really young, actually. But my parents had the Penguin paperback of it. I remember it really clearly with a drawing of of Cassandra, I guess, in her in her white dress. And both my parents loved the book, and so I picked it up and I read it. And I can't have understood very much of what was in the book, (laughs) but I loved it because it felt so incredibly sophisticated. I loved the darkly glittering humour, and it felt very exotic to me. It wasn't like any book that I had ever read. And it stayed with me, and it's haunted me ever since then, literally ever since the late 1960s. So when I was at Virago, we did it, and it was Carmen who had decided to republish it. But, of course, it was this old friend to me, and Georgina Hammock wrote this wonderful introduction to it and got to know... Uh, and as she told me recently, she got to know Howard Baker, Dorothy Baker's husband. Mm. Um, as a result,
0: what is it that stayed with you? So I can. You, you've talked about what it was then, but what is it that you that you keep coming back yes. to? Well,
1: what, obviously, then I think I didn't understand anything of what was going on sexually in the book when yeah. I read it <laughs> as a teenager, um, and I read it simply as a book about about sisters. And I am very interested in sisters, possibly because I am i don't have one. I'm a girl between two boys, which I've always really liked. I haven't wanted a sister particularly. I think of myself as the jam in the sandwich in my family. Oh. Um, mm. But I've always been really interested in sisters and I've... Um, they are mysterious creatures to me. And there's something about very close sister bonds that is not like any other relationship in this world. And, of course, this is more so. It's it's like it's squared a million times over because they're identical twins. Um, but, you know, in my publishing life, I've well, obviously Esther, Esther Freud, who I talked about earlier, Hideous Kinky and Peerless Flats are both novels about sisters. Lucy Ellman's first, mm. wonderful first novel, Sweet Desserts, is about sisters, very much yes. based on her sister relationship. And then, of course, I'm in, I've spent much of the last 20 years watching a very close... Quarters. Of the relationship between my my step stepdaughters Clover oh, and Nell, yeah. and Clover Stroud um, has written Nell died two years ago nearly, and Clover has written the most astonishing book about sisters I've really ever read called The Red of My Blood, which is coming out next spring, and she writes about how they were as as if they were sort of one flesh and that yeah. the parting of them the anguish that, that that brings the parting of them in real living life not not just in death but how passionate their relationship was but also how angry it could be and how confused mm. and how complicated and i think it's it's these things that have always fascinated me
0: and that and that is part of cassandra at the wedding isn't it the idea yes. of the divided Flesh. Yes. We'll come. We'll, we'll. I'm sure we'll yes. talk about that. Simon, when did you first discover this book or Dorothy Baker?
2: Um, I was. I read Young Men with a Horn first, probably about six years ago. I think just because I'd seen a, a book blogger write about it, and I you know, happened to stumble across it. Uh, I then read a book called The Street by Dorothy Baker, that I was halfway through when I discovered was a different Dorothy Baker <laughs> and not, not a very good writer. I'm thinking, this is she's really gone off the boil on this one. I'd bought Cassandra at the wedding in a charity shop at maybe 10 years ago on, on the basis that one always buys a Viragan Morning Classic if one doesn't already own it. Uh, and it was when Daunt republished it. I thought, well, they they have such impeccable taste in their choices that I should get my coffee off the shelf. And read it and well like alexandra these years before i was completely beguiled but i'd enjoyed young man with a horn a lot but this this felt to me in a, in a completely different league
0: and would you like
2: to reveal to the <laughs> panel your particular connection to the book i'd love to so one of the things i love looking out for are books about twins because i am a twin oh. and uh, i'm always very keen to see how other people do it and the answer is often very badly um, I'm, I'm an identical twin, although nice. we only discovered that out five years ago. We were told, the, the doctors told our parents that we were non-identical and we had a DNA God. test done just before our 30th birthday and discovered we were identical. Wow! Um, now looking at photos, I could have saved myself 200 pounds. <laughs> <if I>, but, <laughs> but one believes what one is told. <laughs> um, and I think what a lot of novelists do uh, when they are writing about twins they're either very exactly the same or they're exact opposites. And the thing that really annoys me is that they're often surprised that they look like each other or surprised that they're twins. <laughs> and and you know, it's not a daily surprise to me that I'm a twin. And the thing that Dorothy Baker does so well is that she's not imagining what it would be like to be a twin from the outside. She somehow completely gets under the skin of what it's like to be a twin. I I assumed she was a twin when I was reading it, and it was only afterwards discovering she, that she was an only child, I was very surprised. Uh, it's that thing of having your own identity and a dual identity and mm-hmm. those things coexisting uh, for your whole life. It's truly wonderful how she manages to understand the the glory and the tension of that relationship. Uh, Neither me nor my brother are married, so we haven't got to to this point yet, but there's certainly been times in my life of you know leaving home I found extremely difficult for that reason, and she really captures yeah, how it's both a wonderful bond, but also any bond is restricting in some ways. I don't know if it's too early to go into a passage, but if I, maybe I could read the passage. If you've got a bit of the book on being a twin, that would be wonderful. I have. Granny looked sad. I've never been able to see anything wrong with your being. Don't say it, I said. Don't <laughs> say that word. Nobody else who is one feels this way about it, Gran said, in the agreed voice she always uses for this particular conversation, the conversation about our condition, so to call it. I'm sorry to grieve her or deny her her pleasure, but I have to make things clear, because no one of my grandmother's temperament and sensibilities can understand what it's like to be bound to a way of life like ours, a situation we inwardly glory in, but one that we have to protect at every turn from the menacing mass of cliches that are thrust on us from the outside. To be like us isn't easy. It requires constant attention to detail. I've thought it out. We've thought it out together. I've tried to explain to my doctor, but it's a question of working ceaselessly, of being as different as possible because there must be a gap before it can be bridged. And the bridge is the real project.
0: Mm, so th- I, 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 that's actually yeah. such a great passage to choose, uh, I think, Alexandra and, and Mitch, because... You get the flavour of the, the narrative voice and so much of the appeal of the book from the first couple of lines is yeah. the per, fully developed personality that's coming at you off the page.
1: And don't you think that the uh, the writing... It's so interesting that um, Dorothy Baker was obsessed with jazz. She was a woman of obsessions and mm. jazz was a very big obsession. But I think that the writing is like jazz. It's, she riffs, the rhythm is incredible um, she improvises, she's really bold in the way that she writes and she sometimes have paragraphs where you almost can't take a breath in them. Um, mm. So I, I yeah. think for me that, 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 that prose is electrifying and stays with me.
3: I mean, technically one of the things that just blew me away about this book, I mean, Cassandra's voice, which is most of the book, is, 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 is uh, I mean, that kind of wit... Parker, like as you say, the riffing, the kind of the, the the intelligence, but then to manage to go into the other twin, mm-hmm. the duller. Let's be honest, the duller of the two twins, and to make a a pers- a, a duller consciousness not dull in the writing. I just I, I I I I had to read Judith's bit twice just to to reassure myself that it was as that she of what she did. I I think that is extraordinary, and then. When you come back to Cassandra's voice, you have no idea wh- what you're going to get. And what you get is, is I just think, it's sublime. Mm. I think one of the most moving and, and powerful endings to a novel I've read in a long, long time.
0: We'll come on to the ending. I'd just like to state my credentials as an only child who's read this book three times. <laughs> 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 it had nothing to say to me as an only child. But it, but what I found with it... Um, when when I knew we were going to be doing it, I was sort of thinking, oh, I've read this book twice already, which on one level is good because you've read it, so you kind of feel you're across it. But I thought oh, I'd better read it again. Every time I read it, I every time I've read it, I, I've it it seems unfair to say it's leapt up every time. I thought it was very good the first time I read it. This time, third time through, I was thinking, God, this is a fantastic book. Mm. The, the, yeah. the 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 consistency of the imagery within it, which you couldn't possibly Mm. see the first time you read it, but the stuff about the use of, I mean, to take such a potentially boring image as water and to make it work so hard all the way through the book in different contexts.
2: This time really blew me Mm. away. I Mm. thought, wow, this
0: is so tight and so careful and yet as you say alexandra has all the breath of jazz in it at the same time has all the energy and the rhythm and and it's absolutely first rate it's not you know sometimes we might say well neglected literature neglected for a reason but this this I, i get the sense this book is better known in america is that right than it is in the UK? It,
1: it is because she's American. But what I find really interesting is when I go to the Frankfurt Book Fair or the London Book Fair and I go through the lists of um, foreign publishers, of European publishers, so many of them have that book on yeah. their lists. So it, it's not just Britain and America. That book has an incredible sustained life in across the world. And how is it that that's possible? It's been very quiet But there are all these editors who love it as much as I do. And that's been a great bond. You know, they're they're my friendships with editors who Mm -hmm. love Cassandra at the wedding. (laughs) It's very simple. But I found reading it this time, what struck me that hadn't stayed with me so much is how incredibly sad the book is. Um, And I was was devastated by it this time round um, in a way that I hadn't been when I read it two or three times before.
2: And I think that's partly because everything that Cassandra does to try and preserve her, that relationship is so self-destructive mm. and she's conscious of it being self-destructive while she's doing it but can't, can't stop herself. It's even those conversations where she says, a witch wedding or who witch man or something where it's just going round and round in circles. and She seems to be trying to resurrect some sort of sisterly flippancy but it's really just putting all these barriers back in place.
0: She's a brilliant self-editor, Cassandra. Uh, mm. Painfully mm. so that she'll say something and then she'll reflect on what she said and she'll she'll go mm. that was too strong or that landed I'm yes, quite pleased yes. it landed. But she's a writer. You know? <laughs>
1: she's a writer, isn't she? Like her, yeah, like her she... mother. And that's the other thing is that their dead mother is is there mm. through the book, all yeah. through the
3: book. Yeah. I mean, I, I have to say, um, Alexandra, I thought of I thought of Nell mm. and Clover Did all the you? way through. Yes. And also in that strange way that. I think sometimes, as a man, it's almost an envy that you have for that bond that sisters yes. have. You know, it's kind of it it, it. it is of a different quality and a different intensity. And a, a, I think that I mean, I'm I'm very close to my brother, but it's not quite the same. Yeah.
0: Well, I'd also like to point out um, this seems this will seem so basic if you haven't read the book, but I thought this was a stroke of genius. Cassandra's name begins with a C. All the other main characters' names begin with a J, right? <laughs> Jude, Jack, Jane, James, and her ex-friend Liz Janko, right? They're all... <laughs> it's such a tiny, simple thing to put her on the outside of everybody else. Because I kept thinking, wait a minute, Judith, Jane, is Jane the mum? Yeah, Jane's the mum. No, Jude's the sister. But hmm. Jack, is yeah, Jack yeah, or yeah, James yeah. the father? Or the, her sense of outsiderdom her own sense of outside of them mm. is represented by something as rudimentary but effective as that and i thought that was incredibly what a bold thing to do to just let lie there the idea that her mm. name and all their names are, are pretty much like cassandra what Cass- like three syllables jude jack james jane liz they're all single syllables she doesn't she doesn't fit in. What a, what is, it's So you've got to be a really good writer to be brave enough to do that. That's and to get away with it. And to yeah. get away with it, exactly, yeah. yeah. This is uh, a clip of the writer Peter Flannery, who you'll probably know best for writing Our Friends in the North. And he adapted Cassandra at the Wedding for Radio 4 about five years ago. And he hadn't read the book before. And what, what do
4: you think of this? It's a family, but it's a highly dysfunctional family, and it's set in California for about 50 or 60 years ago. It feels very modern and yet very alien at the same time, and that's partly because the, the family is so quirky and unusual and their concerns are so strange, but they're living at a time which, which it's history now, but it somehow doesn't feel like history. It's, it's an odd mixture of new, new and old and then and now, and I found it down It was one of those books that I read from cover to cover straight away the other thing about it is its tone it's a very unusual piece of work i mean there's a there's an a, there's an attempted suicide in it which makes it sound immediately like it's a piece of graphic um maybe even melodramatic uh, drama but it's but it's not it's very unex it's quite, really quite unexpected and it doesn't in a way even when you get to that point, it's, it's not entirely serious. It's, it's treated in such an odd way. It's not done flippantly at all. I mean, you feel for the girl and what she's going through. Um, but it's not a melodrama and it's not a tragedy. It is not a tragedy. It ends actually not comically or even romantically, but it ends, it ends with a kind of growing up, I think, is what, is what happens, and a moving on. She picks herself up and moves on.
0: Now, we, we are going to talk about two elements of this book which contain spoilers, so you might want to fast forward for the next five to ten minutes, uh, <laughs> But uh, if you are spoiler-phobic. But we can't talk about the book without talking about these elements of it, the first of which is uh, the suicide attempt that takes place in the book. What did you think, Alexander, about what Peter Flannery said there about the tone of that event within the book.
1: I think that's very good. Um, I I it, it's because you're in Cassandra's head when she's when she's taking the pills and she can't do anything without actually being funny and a bit flip about it and 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 dry, dry as anything. And so you're sort of are kind of there with her in the bed mm. when it's happening. So you're not, you're not at a distance, and and you're almost living it with her, and you think, oh, I can do this. It, it makes you think about what it would be like to take those pills, actually. Yes,
0: I, I absolutely agree. I, I think that's really uh, accurate. There's a spontaneity to the way it is told to you, the reader, that it seems spontaneous.
2: And, and Baker's so good at that time and elsewhere at states of consciousness I guess whether it's getting more drunk or if it's waking up mm. or if it is there as she's going into a coma I guess and I think the, the bit that really stood out for me there is where she's writing the suicide note but she can only do it by tracing her finger on the sheet <sighs> of the bed and she's hoping that might somehow be readable later did you get my note she yes. says that she later yeah 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 yeah. Sean I know you wanted to read a bit didn't
0: you that's related to this
3: this is I think one of the most convincing and beautiful accounts of what we would call a near-death experience so I'll, I'll read it so much for the passing in review she's had uh, she's obviously been looking bits of her life have been passing by it was quick i think a great deal of it but soon finished and then though it's not simple or even sensible to try to reconstruct nothingness i believe i almost achieved it for a while a great stretch of purest black velvet smooth soundless, the very piece of black velvet I'd been looking for for so long, I can remember feeling it drop weightless over me, swathing and swaddling me and then becoming one with me, so that there was no way to tell which was velvet and which was Cassandra. But I never made it all the way to nowhere. There was a dogged spark of consciousness, very small, very feeble, but dogged, and it could just as well be called conscience, damn it, as consciousness because I knew in some beating depth that I was engaged in illicit communion with the one great howling beauty of them all, and that there would have to be what there always has to be in this kind of affair, repercussions. There would be jealousy, accusations, recriminations, the full deck of threats and noises. I couldn't stay all night. I'd have to leave by an inconspicuous exit and try not to kick anything over on the way out and remember to pick up my things, my bag, my lipstick, all marks of identification, including the ostentatious monogrammed items my friends are forever giving me. Collect them and leave without lingering because nobody will bless this union, not even Granny, who will bless practically anything if you set it up right. No, no chance for me and the one of my choice, my calm, sweet, quiet, black velvet love. No receiving line, no friends to wish us all the happiness and success in the world and our new life, which of course is the wrong word. But how would they know enough to believe I could prefer the opposite number? It's just amazing, I think.
0: Wow. Again, jazz, right? Yeah. You no, know, you can hear it as mournful, the mournful solo piece. But still funny.
3: She's still funny. Mm, She's still cracking mm, jokes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> So Dorothy Baker's first novel was called Young Man with a Horn and was um, published in 1938 and is still thought of as being one of the great um, pieces of jazz writing based on the life of Bix uh the trumpeter Bix Spiderbeck. And um, it was made into a film in 1950 and starring uh, Lauren Bacall, Doris Day and Kirk Douglas. Um, and uh, we've got a little bit from the trailer here just to give you a flavour of 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 that, and then we'll talk about the relationship between the, the the two books. I think.
2: Music, the kind you can't write, the kind you just gotta feel. He played it, and the world cheered at his feet. Listen, his haunting beat is telling the whole story of his fight to rise above the past, of his climb from Dixieland jive joints to Broadway's starlet roofs. Of the strange adventure that brought him into the lives of two different and exciting women. Two dangerous and demanding loves. Keep away, Richard. Better not take any chances with me. Only people who respect themselves can ever give love fully, freely. I don't happen to respect myself.
4: What are you trying to do, Rick? Kill yourself. Because you tried for something that didn't exist.
1: That's what you've done all your life.
4: You cheap! What a dope I was! I thought you were class, like a real high note you hit once in a lifetime. That's because I couldn't understand what you were saying half the time. Why oh, you like those carnival joints I used to work in? Big flash on the outside, but on the inside nothing but filth. <laughs>
0: Wow. Can I just say, Young Man with a Horn is absolutely <laughs> brilliant. So the, the, the film and the book are both brilliant. Alexandra, you were saying that Cassandra in Cassandra at the Wedding is like a writer, and uh, Rick, the protagonist of Young Man with a Horn, is a genius cornet player. It seems to me that Dorothy Baker has a really uh, deep veneration, Simon, of
2: the artist. Mm. That's mm. the spiritual element mm. of her work. And that's I mean, in Cassandra at the wedding made sort of very overt by this half owned piano that uh represents Oh yeah. You know, that's the soul of the two of them or something. And the idea that either would give it to the other is, is unbearable, even though it can only be in a place one place at a time. And I think you, she doesn't get it's not as heavy handed as making this metaphor, but it does feel a bit like the two sisters had been a harmony and then had to play solo, I guess. And and um Judith is, as as John mentioned earlier, the, the duller of the two, but sort of the more measured, sort of background beat, uh, keeping mm. uh, Cassandra's more sort of <laughs> yeah, improvisation on the top of it, uh, tethered to the ground, maybe. Yes, I think that's I That's too fanciful. But, it, but mm. I, I did feel when she switched voices to Judith, you could see it was the same gene pool, but she was that much more restrained and that much more keeping in time, I guess, when whilst Cassandra was more all over the place.
1: Perhaps the most... For me, devastating moment of the book is when Cassandra says to Judith, you can have my, my half of the piano, and mm, Judith mm. says that Jack doesn't like music.
2: Yes. Yes. And how early did you know that? Almost immediately, yes.
0: <laughs> and why, um, but could you expand on that, Alexandra? Why is that devastating, do you think?
1: I think it's devastating because I believe it means that actually that the marriage can't last, or if it lasts, Judith's soul will be squashed. And she, as a, a in a way, as an artist, won't survive. And it's interesting that Dorothy Baker, was, a, as a child, was a violinist, and um, she had polio, and her hand was damaged, so she could never play it properly. But there must have been, in her soul, the... A musician was in her soul as well, and I think she played the piano later on. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I I just I just think that at the end of it, you think actually Cassandra is going to find her way into life. She will, despite all the difficulties. And Judith is the is the one in peril because her spirit is likely to be squashed.
3: You're so right about That that, that there's a brilliant passage where where judith imagines that the only thing that would help cassie she says would be for me to go to paces the same way she has and she says if it were if right now there were nothing for me but blankness and despair meaningless love pleasureless drinking no faith in anything except the decayed memory of us as a family living in a fortress being self-sufficient and superior if if it were that way for me cass would take over and get me out of it bring me back convince me get me to the shore turn me into a great musician a whole-souled human being a teetotal anti-barbiturate true believer she would she'd do it for me i think god that's that's why that scene why she can't stay at the wedding reception i mean you're right it's it's this is supposed to be the, the the happy denouement but she can see it,
1: and I think what what we haven't said is that is that Judith is the artist I mean she's an incredible pianist yeah. um she's yeah.
0: she's
1: she's a real artist, yes. so it's not giving up a hobby it's it's giving up everything that she is so um it's it's horrific that moment
2: mm. and it's not that he just that he doesn't like it, it's that he doesn't seem to respect it, isn't it.
0: Um, I had a look through the various contemporary reviews of this novel, and what's really striking about it is, I mean, you would expect some variation, but no two reviews in 1962, certainly in the UK, could agree about the book. It was published here by Gallants. They're wildly different. You've got somebody in The Guardian, a reviewer in The Guardian, saying this is a perfect novel. Technically, on a technical level, I agree with Carson McCullers on the cover. It's perfect. But I thought I'd just read for you the review by Anthony Quinton in (laughs) The Telegraph and ask you to (laughs) respond to this. I put it to you. I put it to you. (laughs) So this is from 1962 in a roundup, uh, guys, of titles, including novels by Robin Jenkins, Cesare Pavese, Mary Kett. And Dorothy Baker. In Cassandra at the wedding, Dorothy Baker arranges a surprise for her readers, which somehow rebounds on herself. (laughs) It's a great start. The book begins with the narration of one of a pair of handsome American twins in their young womanhood. (laughs) (laughs) Daughters of a a deeply thoughtful philosophy professor who has retired from the world. (laughs) (laughs) i.e. a cowardly and pretentious drunk. (laughs) This girl, the Cassandra of the title, is magnificently nasty, believing that the world has come to an end when the other less dominant and fascinating twin plans to marry a worthy young doctor. <laughs> so can I just say people are really laughing, but they can't see it. So this is a this is a magnificently off review. Let's just spoilers, yeah, right? My so to foul things up, she stages a suicide attempt. <laughs> just, oh, yeah, yeah. Sta- stages. Gosh. When her pained, concerned sister takes over the narration, a shock is administered with the disowning of the original I figure. But while we are invited to deplore Cassandra's emotional cannibalism, we are still expected to regard her as somehow wonderful and in particular to believe that she is entitled to her piteous intellectual snobbery. In fact, it is impossible to dissociate Cassandra's obscenely egocentric attitude to other people from the complacent, more cultured-than-thou pre- preciosity for which the whole family stands. <laughs> <laughs> Crikey. Say now, what you really mean. <laughs> I would like to make the point, uh, Alexandra, that every single review of this book regardless of how good, bad, or or horrible it was like that one, was written by men in 1962. Why, why does yeah. that and, surprise me? Right. The world the world before the Raga. Yeah. Yeah,
1: that's why we were founded.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's so true. But it is true, isn't it? Like, there yeah. is a particular sensibility to... Uh, I don't even want to say novels like this, to certain novels which... The dear chap there at the Telegraph is simply not equipped yeah, to be able yeah. to deal with.
1: But I also think that this novel was way ahead of its time. One of the things when I read it was I was at that point reading British modern novels. I was reading Nell Dunn and Margaret Drabble and all those women that were publishing at the time and loving them. But this was something else. So the modernity of it I think was exceptional and that's why it doesn't feel dated in any way at all. And in fact, you know, later you have, you know, Nora Ephron and there's a particular sort of layer of smart, wisecracking women writers that come mainly out of America. But I think, I mean, there's a novel that's so like this, it's extraordinary, which I adore, which is Miriam Tave's All My Puny Sorrows. Oh,
0: yeah. One of my two or three favourite novels of of the last 20 years
1: isn't it incredible and i was yeah. told to read it incredible by bit. meg rossoff who said you must read this book <gasps> and of course meg writes brilliantly about families yeah, and yeah, the great yeah, goden yeah. her most recent one i think is exceptional about that but all my Sorrows is about a pianist about sisters uh, pianists, yeah. and one and one tries to kill herself and uh, and that that sort of crackle that that dancing prose Comes out of Dorothy Baker, but I think Dorothy Baker was, you know, obviously she does come out of um, Dorothy Parker. It's all Dorothy's around here. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's friends of Dorothy,
1: <laughs> literally. Um, but, um, but, but, there, but there is a modernity that I think is completely new and sort of, you know, in 1962.
0: Yes, the similarity with All My Puny Sorrows is also a lot of the humour shouldn't work which is why it's so funny yes, that the, yeah. the 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 crackle that you describe is coming from somebody facing down bleak subject matter with absolute clear-eyed truth that is what makes it funny it, it there's there's not gags the gags aren't the thing it's like the same with Cassandra's narration Cassandra at the wedding is the thing i was talking about her self-editing that's where a lot of the humor comes from it's that it's that apprehension of her own motives for saying what she's saying while while being able to analyse them while she's doing it. That that seems very of a piece with with all my puny sorrows.
2: There also seems almost to be humor in the in the plotting and that the wedding is such an afterthought. It's there in <laughs> yes. the title. And then it just sort of happens in a few minutes when Cassandra's not even there, <laughs> despite being Cassandra at the wedding. That's really true. Yes. Ca- Cassandra at the wedding but not at the reception.
4: Yes. Yeah.
2: Or <laughs> the other way around. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Yes,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> do, do you uh...
3: I was just going to. Wonder, I just wondered why she didn't write more. There's an interesting review in the London Review it's suggesting that she was kind of plagued by feelings of inadequacy. Yes. And
0: she had had many good reviews and she had had commercial yep. success, but you feel though that that Cassandra type—that's what you said
3: at the beginning of the show—that that she's she's a self-editor, an extreme self-editor. And and like you know, she wanted to be the best. And it's it's you know, there's a there's a a really telling quote. She was asked in an interview. They said, you know, uh, why do you have to be a writer? The interviewer asked. She said, well, maybe I don't. Baker said, that's what I'm hoping. (laughs) 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 That's every every writer knows that feeling.
0: But also, (laughs) as a writer, presumably she has a crush on genius. You know, that's one of the that's one of the themes we were talking about earlier. You know, and perhaps if you're a writer and you, you know, you're saying, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a trumpet player, but am I Miles Davis? Am I M- Bix Beidebecker? If, if I'm not those yeah. people, then why am I bothering? Has anyone here read Trio?
1: No, um, no.
0: So she wrote four novels and that's the second and it seems perplexingly unavailable.
1: It, it does sound, from the accounts, that it is rather disappointing as a novel. Yeah. Um, but who knows? I think <laughs>
3: lesbian should... pulp is one of the things I. Can... Oh wow! Yes, absolutely.
1: <laughs> um, but I think we should all. We should all hunt it down and uh, and 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 share yeah. it and see what we think of it because it would be it would be very interesting. It's very interesting looking at the Wikipedia entry on her. Is they're obsessed with the lesbian aspects of her writing and herself, yeah. and she just think, "Honey, get over this." And some, <laughs> yeah. somewhere, I think it might be in that they make out that actually. Um, Cassandra is sexually obsessed with her sister, which I think is completely no. wrong, completely mm, I wrong. I didn't
0: and... agree with that. Yeah, yeah I didn't agree yeah. with and this that. this
2: is one of the things I often find whilst reading books about twins, is they turn into twin-cest. And I was worried starting this one because she is obsessed with her, for sure, but it's not. I don't think no, it's sexual not obsession. At all.
1: Not at all. Yes, I... I, I yes i mean i want us to see the sisters together so i'm I'm yeah. going to read a bit about that so cassandra's been drinking all night along with her dad <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's a great drinking novel as well can i just very say very good at drinking
1: i mean the descriptions of drinking are exquisite and uh, at this point, she's in the garden and um, she's on a bench and then she wants to look at the stars, which are very important to her, and then she climbs up on the table. And I have to admit that when I drink, which, of course, is scarcely ever, I, I am given, <laughs> given to getting up on chairs and tables. There's something about the height that it gives you. So I'm I really, really with, with Cassandra here. So she's standing on the table and Judith returns. What are you doing up on the table, my sister said. I hadn't heard her come out of the house. I turned around and looked down, and there she was in her bikini, holding a hairbrush. Nothing special, I said. Well, I'm not getting up there and brush your hair. You're not, I said, as if it was the one thing I'd counted on. But I got right down and <laughs> sat on the bench and Jude got up and sat on the table above me at my back and started brushing. She was using a brush of Jane's, Jane is their mother, with long, stiff whalebone bristles. At first, I thought she was scalping me, but it was a very effective brush. And after a few tearing jerks, It was getting through and pulling away quite smoothly and pleasantly. Mm. I was glad I hadn't yelled because I was now wanting this to go on as long as might be. Two hours, three weeks, forever. Just go on brushing and keep on brushing off what's coming. I don't know how long it went on, the whale boning, nor exactly when it stopped. And Judith got off the table and put down the brush and sat down beside me on the bench. We'd have to do it now, I suppose. Ask the natural questions. When's the wedding? What's he like? Do you have an apartment? And get the proper answers to the natural questions. But we didn't. For a while there we were, quiet, perfectly quiet. The frogs weren't and the crickets weren't, but we were. We've sat quiet a lot in our time and it was that way again. We could have been 11 years old or seven, all at ease with our house behind us and the river bottom down there and everything together with itself. It was the way it should be and I stopped worrying and let myself be grateful at last to Judith for fixing it. How had she done it? How had she managed to get it to be this way, just us, when I'd been expecting to come back home as an outsider and have to meet entrenched invaders. I wanted to thank her, but it wouldn't have sounded right, so I didn't try. Just relaxed and took a long swallow of my drink and went back to being 11 years old and seven and 13, all the ages we've ever been. A lot of days gave their lives to get us all the way to 24, And I sat here now and felt intimately the accumulation of two times 24, which is 48, taking us together a double 24 years of facing responsibilities, learning to walk and talk, then read and write, button up and unbutton, put on, take off, drive, dive, swim, judge, jeer and worry, the world's gift of learning.
0: I don't think the Telegraph reviewer really caught this book. (laughs) Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Uh, Before we go, can we just, uh, again, slight spoiler alert, I'd just like to talk about the end of the book, which Peter Flannery was saying, you know, is about her, Cassandra, moving on. I find that last page, every time I've read it, I've read it a few times because... It does that amazing thing that literature does of meaning one thing and everything, and I'm not quite sure what it is, but yet it's incredibly fulfilling and satisfying. (sighs) What is the outcome for Cassandra at the end of the novel? You know, Alexandra, you were saying you feel the outcome for Judith is potentially disastrous. What is the outcome for Cassandra?
1: I think the outcome for Cassandra is that she will find a way of taking her life into her own hands, and it will never be an easy life, but I think she will become a writer. And a lot of the fact that she's unable to write is to do with the fact that her mother was a writer and her mother has died, and there's an amazing line uh, in this which is... I could never write any of this until I could yeah. tear up the pawn ticket on the ghost of my mother.
0: Ah, yes, yeah, magnificent, yeah, yeah. Simon, what do you what do you think? Do you think it's a do you think it's a hopeful conclusion?
2: Um, I think I'm a little more ambivalent. Uh, I think be- perhaps because that that sock never quite reaches the water in the <laughs> in that last line, and it seems. This, uh, I just always sound as almost doing something or almost plunging into something else, almost dying. And she, I, I get the sense that she will almost achieve things for a very long time. Um, and maybe just the sort of decades of suspended animation or something. Mm. She, she doesn't seem to me to have the, the quality to be able to reach fulfillment but I, but I hope, for her sake, that's not the case.
0: <laughs> I'm going to read that last paragraph. So, again, if you're still listening, you might want to skip. I'm just going to read that last paragraph as a way of bringing us to the conclusion. Because for me, I, I find this incredibly moving. And yet, if, if you mm. were to ask me why, like all great art, I probably can't tell mm. you. Mm, mm. And all I can say is like my silly, like the idea about doing these brave things, this is sort of ludicrous. <laughs> the imagery is kind of ridiculous the twins, the socks, the water, and yet it's got that inevitability that great literature has, that you read it and you think, of course, that's how it has to end. couldn't have, there's no other way. It couldn't, it had to end like this. So here it is. This is the final paragraph of Cassandra at the wedding. I was wearing loafers and socks, and on the way back I was walking faster, and one of my socks kept crawling down behind my heel. I stopped and pulled it up two or three times, and finally I slipped the shoe off, and dropped the sock over the side, and stood where I was, and watched it go, or tried to. It took immense concentration to stay with it. When I thought I'd lost it for good, the wind caught it far down, and I saw it flash in the sunlight, once, and again, and maybe even a third time. But after that, I don't know. It was out of sight a long time. Before it could have hit the water. Oh. It's Gatsby good. <laughs>
2: yeah. Mm-hmm. Isn't it? It's super It is. It's a great, it's it's a super- great super- ending to an ending. An and off. brave, as you say, yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's all we have time for. Huge thanks to Simon and Alexandra for this excuse to lounge by the pool. <laughs> and listen to a family tearing itself apart, <laughs> to Nikki Birch for weaving our four-part harmonies into a single piece of music, and to Unbound for all the brandy and sodas.
0: <laughs> Special thanks to them. You can download all previous episodes of Backlisted, plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website, backlisted.fm. And we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter and Facebook and now in Sound and Pictures on Instagram too.
3: You can also show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash backlisted. We aim to survive without paid for advertising. Your generosity helps us do that. All patrons get to hear backlisted episodes early. And for the fraction of a price of a new silk dress from Saks, lot listeners get two extra lot listeds a month. Our three-way poolside conversation about the books, films and music that have illuminated our week like autumn sun on leave.
0: Lot listeners also get to hear their names read out on the show as a mark of our thanks and appreciation. And this week's batch roll call is Catherine McKinney, Rob Christofferson, Helen Hawken, Sarah Lopez, Stephanie Klassen. Thank you all. Tom Hurst,
3: Hannah Gray, Bridget Rogers, James, Steve Wilson.
0: Simon, is there anything you would like to add that we haven't covered about Cassandra at the wedding or Dorothy Baker?
2: Oh, um, just that it has a, a twin's mark of approval. If you're looking to read Twinlets, this is, this is the one to go for. The best The best More one. than The Shining. <laughs> oh, I should confess I've never read The Shining, but perhaps that will displace it.
0: Alexandra, anything you would like to add before we say goodbye?
1: Nothing but read it. What a book.
0: So true. Simon and Alexandra will be here uh, next time as not as the guests on this. They're taking over from me and Mitch because they're so <laughs> <laughs> they're <Lovely>. so <laughs> brilliant. Uh, thank you both. Thank you so much for coming in. It's amazing. Thank, thank you. you. And um, listen, we're going to leave you with a piece of music by Bix Beiderbecke, uh, which seemed appropriate to Cassandra and at the wedding. Bix on cornet from 1928. Frankie Trumbauer and his orchestra playing. Bless you, sister. See you next time. (laughs) Bye.
3: prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash Backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.